This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my world on even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. morning everybody ah yes we're still here coronavirus and all you do have to wonder don't you well that's part of what we're going to be getting into in discussion very appropriate guest is with us. He's joined us a number of times previously, and he's in studio, which we always appreciate as well. Dr. John Huber is the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, and among the things he's going to talk with us about today is to talk about the coronavirus and this talk of a pandemic some of the fears that people have. It's amazing. Everywhere you go, people are talking about this topic. And good morning. I'm Bob Salter. It's been certainly a busy week. Um, those of you who are involved with the stock market even uh, need to say exactly what the impact of um, all this talk has been uh, on the market uh, this week as well. First of all, Dr. Hubert, it's nice to see you again. Good morning, Bob. Always a pleasure to be in studio. And good morning to you as well. I guess in beginning our discussion, um, I always like to do a little bit of background on mainstream mental health, if you would. We are a nonprofit, and our goal is to destigmatize mental health, mental health issues. Uh, we firmly believe that you know one of the largest causes for fear and anxiety about anything is the unknown. And the reality of it is you're not broken when you have a mental health or disorder. You have a human issue going on, and uh, you can get help and, and get on with your life. And uh, so many people are afraid of the stigma associated with that. And we do a lot of work with veterans and, and everyday people as well, well as first responders. And uh, we're out there plugging away every day trying to get this to be dinner table conversation. Is that getting to be 
an easier thing for you to do? More and more people are giving me an ear because of amazing people. I mean, you were one of the first people right off when I started, what, three, man, almost four years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they are giving me more more time. Uh, in fact, one of the things I'm doing up in the city, I've, I've four or five different TV appearances while I'm up here, nation, national television. And I just got hit up in the AP and over 6,000 publications and 6 million links on my website within hours of being published there. So people are out there paying attention finally. The reason I bring this up is it's interesting you were saying this, <laughs> and it, it triggered in my mind because I always like how so many different things in life relate. In one of my other jobs, um, I teach in college classes. and mm-hmm. my public speaking class this semester, one of the group projects one of the groups of students is doing the topic of mental health awareness and their group assignment essentially is to take an issue or a problem and talk about a way of addressing it or solving it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I always like to see where students will go with this because these are young minds. They're appealing to other young minds as well. And it's interesting because every semester now, I'm getting somebody coming up with this topic of mental health awareness in classes, okay? And they bring up, you know, in some cases it'll be things like body shaming, Mm -hmm. okay? It'll be bullying. They'll, in some cases, be willing to broach the subject of suicide and suicide awareness, Um there are people who will talk about their own experiences with mental health uh, issues or those of family members as well. They'll talk about the idea of a therapy. I mean, it seems like as a society, we're almost evolving in terms of our attitudes toward mental health. Or am I misreading that? I I think you are. And, you know, I think it's wonderful. I don't know if you remember, I taught for 21 years in Mm -hmm. college. Uh, so if your students need to interview or touch with space with somebody, you can give them my information and okay. I'll do that. But what, what has happened is it used to be we would have to talk about suicide awareness or we'd have to pick a specific group like suicide awareness in our veterans. And then people, oh, it's veteran stuff. They wouldn't go, it's mental health issue. It's, you know, they, they would target a very specific thing and it kind of gave everybody permission to do that. Now it's like, I'll get specific calls about, let's talk about depression. Let's talk about how parents deal with their kids who get diagnosed with schizophrenia. Let's have, you know, all these very specific things and people just are, it's, they're like sponges. It's just asking for more and more and more. So the fact that diversity, the differences, what the students want to talk about, the self-disclosure, the family Mm -hmm. self-disclosure, you know, that, that was something that didn't happen, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 20, 27, 28 years ago, when I first started teaching at university, that would never have happened. We would have talked about what is depression. What <laughs> and then the other thing that's a big factor, and even we're seeing the impact of this at um, the college level, uh, the impact of people who have been in the service. In some cases, they've done several tours. Absolutely. Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever. Okay, um, And these are relatively young people five, six years in some branch of the service, multiple tours, they're coming back 
to quote-unquote normal society with all kinds of issues that they're facing. And the reality is that whereas, and this was an example in one of my classes as students said uh, to talking to classmates. And it was so powerful. You could have heard a pin drop mm-hmm. after she said this. I go down or drive down a roadway. I see trash on the side of the road. You see trash on the side of the road. But I think of that trash as potentially explosive devices. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's like, whoa, yes. wow. So you've got a whole group of people. And this is one of the concerns I had when we started escalating our involvement in military conflict, um, Afghanistan, Iraq, et cetera. And have continued. And obviously it has continued. Of what was going to be the effect of this on the people who were going there. Correct. We're only beginning, I believe, to see and feel what that effect is. We, we see, too, because I work with lots of veterans, mm-hmm. we see that one of the things that happens is they get to go through a 30-minute evaluation slash mass lecture on mental health as they're walking out the door after they, they you know, come back to become civilians. 30 minutes? That's what my, my veterans tell me, you know, and because, and everybody's afraid to say, oh yeah, I'm having these nightmares. I'm having these thoughts. I walk down the street and see that piece of trash or there's a car broken down and I get as far away from it in my vehicle as I can. Mm -hmm. I start slowing down. So now they're in the fast lane. Everybody's going 20 miles faster than they are. And they're slowing down because they're waiting for somebody to jump out with something or for that car to blow up like an IED and they're causing traffic behind them and road rage is kicking in and they, they are in their mind, they're back in Afghanistan, they're back in Iraq, and they get that 30 minutes because they're afraid to say anything because they don't want to be labeled broken. Mm-hmm. And what we really need to be doing, we give them boot camp when they hit hit the, the recruitment. Right after recruitment, they walk out, they get on their bus, and wherever they're at, Army, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, they go to boot camp. That significantly increases their survivability rate. That, that teaches them the things they need to be worried about in a, in a live fire zone. We need to turn around and do the exact same thing. The last four weeks of their enlistment needs to be a boot camp to become a civilian. And not necessarily go, if you have this, you have a mental... No, here's how we rethink things. Here's how we reframe. We restructure. Teach them essentially life skills. In fact... Uh, I'm involved with uh, some veterans courts there, and one of my now good friends, George, uh, Judge Glickler, um, he set it up down in one of the counties just south of where I live. And it's amazing how many of these veterans come in and they get assault charges, all these different things. They they essentially say, plead guilty. We will train you. We will send you to social skills classes mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes therapy like me. Um, and when they get through that, they actually expunge their record so there's nothing on their record anymore and it's amazing we have had recidivism rate over the last you know six years less than three percent because once the guys get back and retrained how to be a civilian their world calms down significantly and you know you look at uh, recidivism rates for people who just are part of that element you know that aren't veterans 
and their recidivism rate is 35-40%. So that shows you that they're, they're a, the, that training works, and it needs to be part for every veteran when they're coming across before they, they hit the civilian streets right there. Mm. Well, part of the motivation for our discussion today, obviously, is to talk about the, um, the coronavirus, um, you know, the, the talk of pandemic um, uh, with this and you know, we're going to get into a number of areas uh, surrounding this. I'm just going to mention the fact, and what we'll do is in our next segment really get into this in depth. Mention the fact that Dr. Huber is with us for both hours of, of our program. We're going till 8 this morning. Um, and if you want to join the discussion, you can, certainly. 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at The Fan. You can join us at any point uh, during the uh, chat today because... Uh, this topic, as I mentioned, has been so much um, in the news. It seems to be literally um, everywhere. And part of the concern I had heading into our discussion today is how people are really perceiving what is being said to them. Specifically about the coronavirus? Yes. Okay. Um, you know how do how do groups of people because that's what we're talking about here group think how do groups of people handle something which in the way that it's worded the way that it's pictured inspires fear just by the words themselves absolutely it's like if you're involved in an accident and if somebody comes out to you, how fast was the car going when it careened into you versus how fast was the car going before it bumped into you? Just changing those two words. All of a sudden you go, oh, it's 30 miles an hour. Careened, oh, it was, it was pushing 55, 60, man. <laughs> you know, and that's right. unfortunately, right. that's how fragile human memory is and perception. So you're going to have that. And the the media... Uh, I think, and, and as we get into this, you'll see, I think it's a bigger geopolitical issue more than it is a medical issue. And uh, look at what was going on in China starting last summer. We started having college campuses having rallies about asking for democracy, asking for their communist government to start giving them more control over their lives and allowing them more input. It got so bad in the fall, and it wasn't playing here in the U.S., but I was watching. I have friends in China. I have Chinese friends and Taiwanese friends, and they're actually part of a political movement to try and do this exact same thing. So I'm watching that, and I'm watching the college campuses having huge rallies and classes clearing out. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll follow on that. I want to Excellent. talk about this more in depth. Dr. John Huber is our guest. Radio.com. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solcher. As a matter of fact, it's March 1st. Well, this is the day that that uh, plastic bag ban takes effect here in uh, New York. Eh, we'll see about that. Mm. Dr. John Huber is in studio with us. Why am I so skeptical with everything, it just seems, anymore? Eh, you know, it's... <coughs> all right. Dr. Huber is the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health 
which is a nonprofit organization. He's in studio with us, Mainstream Mental Health, that's all is one word, .org, the website. Uh, he is um, joining us to talk with us about a couple of different things. Uh, we're starting off in discussion talking about this uh, topic of the coronavirus, um, talk about a pandemic. You were talking before we paused for uh, Dave's update and um, messages about the whole um, idea of the way this has been pictured. Mm-hmm. And you were giving some points leading up to where we are now. Right. Because you were watching, as you said, what was taking place, actually, I guess, on a geopolitical level. Correct. In China. Correct. In fact, um, you know, I, I kept getting asked because of this whole thing with civil rights and gun advocates here in the States, well, you know, is this going to cause a civil war? And I'm like, you know, the, the civil war is coming, <laughs> but it's coming in China. Hong Kong was up in arms, and the Chinese government was having a hard time dealing with this. All of a sudden, December, they have this new coronavirus, COVID-19, and whoo, it's a pandemic. We're having martial law. They close college campuses. They start saying tens of millions of people are now sequestered to their homes. And people, you know, within the government are delivering foods to them, supposedly. Um, we can't get all that kind of stuff together. Confirmed 100%. Um, people are now being isolated in, in wards and hospital rooms, hospital buildings, we don't know what type of care they're getting. We, I hear stories where they've just got like 30 people in a room and, you know, they make sure you have food and water and that's it. And then other people who are in private rooms and they get all this elaborate, you know, health care stuff. And, and uh, at the same time, we've got roughly a 2% mortality rate, which 2%, you know, we don't want anybody to die. But that means 98% of us talk about framing how you present stuff. 98% of people are going to be perfectly fine with this. In fact, if you go and buy any kind of disinfectant, Lysol, whatever, if you look on the back, there's going to be a, say, human coronavirus. It is already part of our illnesses. It's, it's part of the rhinovirus, common cold stuff, okay? So we get it every day, all the time. It's just a mutated version of it that used to only be active in reptiles. They were the, the Lancet out of Great Britain went and did all the DNA studies. I trust the Lancet probably a little more than I do you know, the news coming out of communist China, but all of a sudden we're, we're 65 days into this identified thing. We don't know how long it was going before then. Mm-hmm. And we have 2,800 deaths, 77,000, 78,000 people. Let's just call it 80,000 people diagnosed, tested positive for this virus. At the same time, we lose 360 to 380 people today in modern healthcare USA a day, 360, 380 people a day to the flu. And we're in the middle of flu season right now. So in those 65 days, do the math, 360 times 65, let's take the minimum side of it. You're still looking 22,000 people have died in that same time, yet we don't see one news article about, hey, you need to wash your hands for, for the flu. Perspective, we haven't had one die here in the U.S. from the coronavirus yet. Now we've had a U.S. citizen, and they were in China, getting some kind of health care, which we don't know what they were getting at that point. But the people dying from that are immunocompromised, people with kidney transplants, some of these autoimmune disorders and stuff that they've got going on, the elderly and the very young, which who dies from the flu? The elderly, the very young, and immunocompromised. 
So I'm not telling people to ignore it. Wash your hands. Use the alcohol gel. Make sure it's over 70, 80% alcohol. Um, if you think you have a cold, that's when those little masks need to come in. Because they're really not, I mean, the CDC, the World Health Organization, the masks are there, they say to wear, to keep from giving it to somebody else if you have it. Because they're not going to, they're not, unless you get the HEPA filtered ones, they're not going to block a virus. It'll go right through it. But right now, the coronavirus is through water droplets. So you sneeze, you cough, you know, you, you're like me, you're German, you start talking and spit goes everywhere, you know. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I guess that's what it is. But uh, <laughs> you want to protect other people. Don't be paranoid. Don't change. Don't stop grocery shopping. Don't not go to the movie theater. Don't go to the concert. No, go to the concert. If you're changing your life that much for something that we have 60 cases in the United States that we've identified, uh, we have 330 million people. Odds are you're not going to be in the movie theater with one of those 60 people. But at the same time, you have um, the president announcing this task force being put together last week, um, headed up by the vice president. Um, basically, it seems like almost daily updates coming. Um, you had the story come out yesterday about the um, first person in this country uh, to die from what is mm -hmm. said to be from the coronavirus right. in, um, I guess it was in the Seattle, Washington area. When that happens, it gets an awful lot of focus in news. And, of course, we're in that 24-7 news cycle, which helps to promote the idea of immediacy, breaking news, etc. And it's very easy for groupthink to take over. How do we balance that? Well, I think I think you hit on an important thing that twenty four seven, not a twenty four cycle, twenty four hour cycle, but a twenty four seven. So we're really running on a fifteen or twenty minute news cycle, and we get it through our cell phones, smart media, smart social media, and they have amazing algorithms. They know human behavior better than most psychologists and psychologist researchers. They know how to get that stimulus response. You get that dopamine burst. And a few seconds later, the dopamine's not there because it's just a little bit, and you start craving more of it. And the best mm. way to do it is to get back on there. And now we've got frontal lobes saturated with dopamine, like that trickle effect. You know when you do that that weeping uh, landscaping where you put the leaking hoses around instead mm -hmm. of using the water sprinkler? Mm -hmm. And so the water's on all the time. And what we know is that that mechanism is exactly the same mechanism that heroin addicts deal with when they shoot heroin up. Only difference is you're getting a drop instead of like gallons of dopamine. When you do the heroin, you get just a little drop with this. The apps, if you hit 30 likes in the first five seconds, because your friends all see that, they're wanting their dopamine fix too. You post something on, on your website, your Facebook, the algorithms only put three or four of them on there. And then they drag it out, and about five minutes later, they put a couple more out there. And then they drag it out, and they put... A, 
because that keeps you jonesing for more. You want mm -hmm. that next little trick. You want that next little drip. So the best thing to do is to break that cycle. Put your phone down. Or what I have a lot of my patients do is like, look, you need a, you need a vacation. Let's take a week off social media on your mobile app. What's the best way to do it? Go online, get those kids apps, you know, that you do to filter your kids and keep them from looking at porn and all that kind of stuff on there. And you can turn cell phones into cell phones instead of your social media <laughs> app. It'll turn off the data streams. Do it to yourself. Give yourself a week. And then my patients are asked to give themselves one day a week after that. Mm -hmm. And that keeps them reset. It's like, wait a minute. You know, the world is actually a lot better place than what this if it bleeds, it leads kind of mentality that we get not 20, every 24 hours, every 20 minutes. That is contributing to this group think. You got your headphones on, you're listening, reading, you're getting these bursts all the time. You're walking across the street here in, in Times Square and there's 200 people crossing the street with you. You think everybody right there is feeling and thinking exactly the same thing you are. When in fact, they're watching or listening to some podcast from who knows who, and they're thinking everybody's listening to what they're listening to. So we start, how do we become the, the, the social leader on that? And that's the way to do it is then to, when you post, be as extreme as you possibly can because you need to be the loudest voice. And it reinforces that whole mechanism. It's all driven by Pavlov's stimulus response cycle, and we don't even know it's doing it. But everybody who writes those apps knows exactly what's happening. You know, it's very interesting as you're saying that, because as I told you when you came in today, um, I had the realization, shall I say, on my way here. Literally, I take a train a little after 1 o'clock in the morning from um, out in God's country in New Jersey where mm -hmm. I live um, into the city. And um, I was on the train, reached in my pocket for my phone, <laughs> and there's that awful feeling came over me of, oh, my God, I don't have my phone. And oh, my was, God, you was, have to face reality. I was going to send a text. It's like I, I, I was actually lost for a moment. But here's what has happened since then. I'm a lot more alert today. I got more done than I usually do during the time that I'm here because I'm not scrolling through my phone. I wasn't doing that on the train coming here. I'm not going to be doing it, obviously, on the train going back back home. But it's it, we're so wrapped up in this. And it's just... it. it it just feeds upon itself. And a situation like this can literally snowball to the point where it's almost out of control. I, I think it is out of control. At the same time, I believe that we are a resilient species. <laughs> we're actually pretty smart. And right now we're playing catch up. I mean, 2007, the smartphones hit the marketplace mm. within three months these social apps started hitting within nine months they were controlling the college mind all the college students on there were like wow and then we slowly kind of picked up and by what was it 2010 
the print news media in this country laid off 70% of its employees that year because the world had converted. The closest thing we have to that is television. You know, but when it hit, we had two, three channels. We were that way for a decade or so. Then we had a few of these alternative channels, the UHF, and so we had like five, six channels, maybe eight channels, and that lasted for several decades. Then the 70s hit, and we had localized cable networks, and all of a sudden we had 20 channels to choose from to today where we have 300 channels to choose from. But we learned as a species with that first set of channels how to start managing our day around that, how to not be locked in our front doors and, and, and cloistered because of this electronic shackle. <laughs> you know, and some people were, even with back then, with just one or two you know, channels. They were stuck in there, and they weren't getting outside. But then we quickly learned how to manage that. We're playing catch-up with this. I mean, people are waking up in the middle of the night. I wonder what's on my cell phone. They pull it out, and they don't have their night mode on there, and they're getting the blue light. So even though they may fall right asleep, their brain is already turned back on as if they'd just woken up with their 8 o'clock alarm clock or 6 o'clock alarm clock. And they're trying to sleep, and they're no longer going into REM sleep. So the rest of the sleep they get is not going to be restful, peaceful, constructive sleep that we normally expect to have. So now they're walking around, and they don't even realize they're sleep-deprived. Well, I was in bed for 10 hours, but uh, you only got a little bit of the appropriate sleep you need. Man, this is a vicious cycle. And, you know, when you go news from a subscription base where you got a newspaper every, every morning mm-hmm. and you had a deadline the night before for the print to a click-through base, you've got stories being released by the old-fashioned news media into that and it gets a headline or a bullet change change every 10 to 20 minutes. So people are not even reading the story, so they don't even know the story hasn't changed. They just put another bullet up there, and they get to go, oh, my God, i got to look at that. Okay, click, yeah, they're right. See, and they repost it, and it goes out to everybody else. Welcome, welcome to the world in which we live. Absolutely, but we survived Elvis. <laughs> we will survive this. We're just playing catch-up right now. It's the voice of Dr. John Huber on our program. He is the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health. MainstreamMentalHealth.org is the uh, website for the organization. He's our guest both hours of our program this morning. I mentioned earlier you want to join us in the discussion. You can. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. I know I'll be there tomorrow morning. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. We're in a discussion with Dr. John Huber on our program. Dr. Huber is the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, mainstreammentalhealth.org, the website. And he's our guest uh, both hours of our program this morning. We go until 8 o'clock. Sports Edge follows our 8 o'clock update. And um, we're talking about a number of different things with uh, Dr. Huber in our discussion today. We started off talking a little bit about the uh, topic of the... Uh, coronavirus, and, and broached a couple of other areas. Um, what I said we'll do, too, over the course of the time that he is with us today is try to work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. Listen, you know, our listeners very often take us in 
um, directions that um, are interesting. Sometimes it's things I haven't even thought of um, or want to follow on, but a listener will take us down a, a certain road with that. So I always like to encourage that. And frankly, we're blessed for a couple of weeks here at least to be able to go with the um, two-hour version of the show, which is nice. Let's enjoy it while we can. Uh, to the phone we go and go to um, Bob in uh, Little Ferry, New Jersey. Bob, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Good morning, Bob. And nice to hear you again after a hiatus of about what, several weeks there. <laughs> it's been a while, yes. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Huber, I've spoken to you before. <clears throat> Good morning. <clears throat> I have uh, two things I'd like to bring up to you. One, I would like an explanation from you on how to help me. The first one, I want to make a statement about the way I go through life. And I have a thing on my refrigerator which says, uh, courtesy is contagious, pass it on. Now, I do a lot of driving, and uh, I'm in the trucking business. And <clears throat> that's a good example of where I'll be driving. And everybody, especially in the metropolitan area, we, we seem to be frantically trying to get somewhere in the shortest amount of time. But, you know, and you include me in that. I, I'm always on a schedule. But at the same time, when I do something where I allow someone to go in front of me or I, I do an alternate merge or all the different things that you don't have to do but that I do, I'll be a son of a gun if I look in the mirror or if that car passed me, or if that car is behind me, or something like that, and I'll look, and I'll notice that they're doing the same thing to another another car. And it's the truth. The courtesy is contagious. And what I'll also do is, let's say I'm walking into a restaurant, and someone is coming out of the restaurant, and I'm walking in. It's just a one-on-one. Those people usually have their eyes down to the sidewalk or the parking lot or something like that. (laughs) I will reach out and go, Good morning, and I'll have a smile on my face, and lo and behold, that person will look up at me and go, "Oh, good morning," you know, like in shock that I said good morning to them. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing how that works. It makes me feel better. And by the way, there's no particular reward that I'm seeking. It's just being nice, and I feel good about it. If that is a reward, I guess it is. It but is. at the same time, I believe I'm making that person feel well. Now, you can comment about that, but this is what I want to really bring up with you. As nice as that sounds, oh, what a wonderful guy this Bob is. He's so nice, right? What happens when I run into something where I have to be tolerant? I run into a situation where, excuse me, but there's no excuse for the behavior or what's happening. That's where I run into a bit of a problem because I don't know how to be tolerant. The only thing I can do is after I realize the situation i'm in and it's it's not a good one i try to shrug it off and if it comes up again i try to treat it with indifference and avoid it but i don't think that's the way to do it unless maybe that is the way to do it how do you treat in other words in your particular personal life how do you treat it when you run into a situation where let's say you have a patient and you tell the patient excuse me you know you owe me a few hundred dollars here well i'm sorry but i don't have the money what do you do when you run into a, a situation where you have to be tolerant? How, how do you attack something like that? I don't know how to really do that in my life. I, I really get upset a lot on that. Well, you see see a lot of things going on. And one of the only things that we know is we have very little control in this world. Control is kind of an illusion. But the only real control we have is how we react 
to the situations around us, the stimuli around us. Now, you know, whether you're at the restaurant and the parents are letting the kids run crazy up and down the aisles between the tables and running into the wait staff and stuff like that, and you're like, you know. That's a good one. I mean, I mean, and you know, you're sitting there, you see that kid run by, and you think to yourself, man, I just slide my foot over there, and they'll hit the <laughs> ground and slam their head into the concrete floor over there. You think that, but you don't do that because you're an adult. And, uh, you know, you may give the parents a dirty look, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, because we're civilized. That doesn't necessarily mean we like what's going on, but just because they're not being civil doesn't mean that I'm going to give them control of my life and become less civil than I, I really am. And that's where, that's where the true power is. And I think, you know, we, we talk about crazy things, but I've seen it too many times that, that karma that kind of happens there, you know, and, and then they, they wonder why their kids order isn't exactly right or, you know, or we're sitting there and the staff at the restaurant know that we're putting up with that. So, you know, we get a little extra, you know, uh, ice cream or gravy or whatever we're eating, you know, because they, they, they are thanking us for being tolerant and, and not creating a big scene for something that the wait staff really can't control. And, uh, you know, we have to, we have to realize that not everybody has your perspective. Those people with their heads down may be on one side lost in their cell phone, their smartphone, but they could be also, you know, have just lost a family member and they're looking at their cell phone, you know, looking at pictures of Uncle Bob and them deer hunting last year or out picnicking with the family or, you know, and they need someone like you to say, hey, good morning. I hope you're having a good day. So, you know, you, you, you mentioned that and that's a very powerful thing. You know, why do people start letting other people merge? We're lost in our own world and we see somebody being a courteous driver and backing off and letting somebody get into the lane. Wait a minute, I can let a person in, and all of a sudden they do it, and then it snowballs and everybody's being courteous, and all of a sudden we have a little bit better world to live in. And I think you're doing exactly what needs to happen. You pick your battles, you know. You, you pick your battles. Do you really want to bring something up that you know you're not going to change that situation? You're just going to make yourself more upset and more frustrated. And uh, I appreciate I appreciate your input, and thanks to hear from you again, man. That was great. All right, guys. Have a good morning. You too. Thank you very much, Bob. You want to join us in our discussion, 877-337-6666. That's our number here at the FAN. Last time you were here. Yes. Um, sparked a lot of um, interest from folks during the show. One of the things you had said to me was, um, it was interesting that you also had some people reach out to you, I guess, after the show. Yes. Yeah. Which is neat, nice to hear, too. It, it, it was, I mean, it, it was such an amazing thing because several of your listeners had actually went to my website, found my address, and wrote me old-fashioned snail mail. It took an effort. It wasn't like they just hit to my email and dropped me a few lines. They actually wrote out uh, their, their, their feelings about how important coming out and talking about stuff like this is. And I got letters up to three months. I think the last one was right at three months from when I was here in, in June last year. And uh, they always seemed to hit me right when I needed that, you know, hey, are you doing any good kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know? And I get that letter. And one of them, I think, was eight and a half, almost nine pages long. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I ticked somebody off, and then I read it, and it's like, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Here's my story. If it hadn't, you know, if I don't hear things from people like you, I feel like 
I'm hitting a wall. And they're telling me how you, Bob, letting me come on your show and do this has inspired them and kept them putting another foot in front of the door every day and getting up and crawling out of bed and going through the drudgery and how that inspires them. And I'm sitting there reading this letter going, I was done until I read this letter. Now, now I got another three months. I'm going to keep moving forward one way or another. So thanks to all your listeners. I appreciate that. Well, it's always nice to hear that people do um, follow up on things. And also it's part of the whole process of, of communication. And what I think is really interesting is to hear that people actually still write letters. I was that's the That's the shocking thing here. Somebody with eight or nine page letters. Somebody actually wrote out. Yes. A, this is handwritten. That one was handwritten. Someone were typed up. A handwritten letter. Imagine eight or nine pages. I still got it in my desk drawer. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations to the person who did that for expressing themselves in that fashion and investing the time in doing that too. 877-337-6666 is our number here at the fan. You want to join us in our discussion? Let's go back to the phone to um, Mike in Pennsylvania. Mike, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Good morning, guys. How are you? All right. Where are you traveling? Uh, I'm going to work actually overtime. So I'm on the uh, turnpike in Pennsylvania. Okay. So I wanted to ask the doctor uh, about the coronavirus, and I understand his comparison to the the regular flu. Mm-hmm. But what I don't what I don't understand was why China went to such extreme lengths, blockading people in their houses and spraying the streets. If it was just the regular flu, that confused me. Okay, well, they they've had an uprising this past year of people asking to be more involved in government instead of being a communist country 100%. They're asking for more input, for the right to vote, for civil rights, for the things that we have here in our representative republic here in the United States. In fact, they have been using for the last 18 months the U.S. flag as their main protest symbol. And it was slowly starting to hit the rest of the world. They could could kind of... uh, uh, filter and keep what is there that they want to hit the mainstream media outside of their country only so much. And it was starting to, to become a big thing. So now if they have this, this coronavirus and they are creating this social fear to make it a pandemic, if they don't follow through and spray the streets, if they don't follow through and say, no, you have to stay indoors, then everybody would realize that uh, maybe it's not as bad as they really think it is and we don't have to be indoors. And those protests would have continued uh, by, by going through and, you know, like they do in South Florida, you know, spraying for mosquitoes, spraying for the coronavirus uh, and showing the rest of the world how serious and, and severe this is. And, you know, what, what happened this past week? The World Health Organization said, well, you know, it may not be as bad as we think it is. And maybe we shouldn't. Maybe, actually, they said maybe President Trump is right, that we need to be cautious and we need to pay attention, but we don't need to shut down our whole world just because of this. Would, would they be willing to sacrifice, like, their production? Uh, you know, um, how they, they, they're like the lead in, uh, exporter of um, metal for cars and stuff. Would they be willing to sacrifice all that? Just Absolutely. Absolutely. It's about power. You know, they're going to take the money. I mean, it's a communist country, so it's not really about, you know, 
having more billions or more trillions than they had before. It's about maintaining power and control over their people. Okay, that's, I, I, I heard that explanation before, but I just didn't know if uh, that held up. Because it, it seemed to me that a lot of people were dying and that, they, you know, the stories about crematoriums and, you know, photos of sulfur in the air and stuff, it seemed to me that it was a lot more death than they actually led to believe, like they, they uh, said in the media. Well, and that's one of the fears we have, and that's one of the reasons why we need to be cautious. We don't know how much they're giving us is actually true and accurate. So I don't want us to just be blind and say, let's not even worry about it at all. I want us to go, let's be cautious. Let's find out what we actually can find out, what the actual numbers are. Like I, I get asked all the time, why do you say what you say when I go into court? And I go, it's not my opinion. I have to give the judge and the jury the numbers. And it sometimes doesn't agree with what I want to say, but it's what I need to say and have to say to maintain my legitimacy as an expert witness. So do you think that um, just do you think that they didn't have as many victims as we're led to believe? I, I think the ones that they lost, they truly lost from that. But my my concern is, you know, like you were talking about all the sulfur and the bodies and the crematoriums, are there ten times as many bodies and they're just not telling us about it? Or maybe not every one of those three thousand people actually died from the coronavirus, but they threw them in there anyhow so that we, we know it's that oh, okay. 2% list. So I don't know which one of them it is. All right. I appreciate your input. Thank you. Mike, thank you for your call. Travel safely. All right. All right. You All want, right, thank you. You want to join us during the course of our, our discussion with uh, Dr. Huber? You can. 877-337-6666. That's our number. We're going to get into some other topics as well in our discussion. He's with us on our full show today, and we go till 8 o'clock this morning. Um, one of the things that we'll touch upon in our 7 o'clock hour is talking about, um, as doing some reading this morning, one of the things that uh, you had mentioned to us I think it was last time you were here, was about um, ketamine yes. uh, being offered uh, to patients with the treatment-resistant depression. I want to explore exactly what's taking place uh, with that in um, the course of our discussion here. And we're also going to talk a little bit, too, about this uh, news that is very disturbing uh, about some of the uh, sheriff's deputies in Los Angeles County. Um, and this apparent leaking of graphic photos from that uh, helicopter crash that uh, claimed the life of Kobe Bryant and uh, his daughter and seven other people. I mean, a, a lot of questions come to mind, obviously, in situations like that. We'll touch upon that as we continue on our program and try to work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us as we continue along this Sunday morning. I'm Bob Salter. Dr. John Huber is with us. He's the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health on the web at MainstreamMentalHealth.org. And he's got a lot of information to share with us this Sunday morning.
26 degrees, but what does it really feel like out there? Even if it feels like 26, that's no picnic. Listen, you know, we haven't had much of a winter when you get right down to it. But I'm so done with this. Let's move along. Ah, the impatience of life itself. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. Welcome to our program on the fan. After our 8 o'clock sports update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. Ed Randall will be by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update this Sunday morning. We are in a chat on our program with Dr. John Huber. He is in studio with us. He's the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health on the web at Mainstream Mental Health. That's all is one word. Dot .org and um, so many different areas where we're going in discussion. I alluded to this next topic before we paused for our top of the hour update from uh, Dave. And um, uh, this is um, a disturbing revelation <clears throat> because this news broke last week um, out of Los Angeles County in California. And this is an outgrowth of that uh, helicopter crash that claimed the life of Kobe Bryant, his uh, 13-year-old daughter Gianna, and seven other people um, last month. Basically, the story is that some of sheriff's deputies are alleged to have leaked graphic photos from that crash site. Now, apparently the department, according to the Los Angeles Times, is saying officially that the matter is being, quote, looked into. And looking online this morning... It doesn't appear that there's a specific individual or individuals um, who, at least at this point, have been identified. But a number of questions come to mind. Um, The very first one that comes to my mind, because of the um, restrictions that the Federal Communications Commission imposes on language with broadcast uh, media. I will not say on the air because I don't want to have to delete myself from the air. But it is a natural thought on my part and probably a lot of people. But the logical question that I can pose, I think, and I'd be interested in your take on this, Dr. Huber, is Do we have to worry here about some sort of underlying psychological issue taking place? I mean, this sounds like something where there's at least another story going on and possibly several others. How did you react when you heard about this? I was appalled. I mean, I was appalled by a lot of things. You know, when I hear the story that Kobe's 
wife found out about it because a friend of hers called her because she had seen it on a TV show and said, oh, my God, I just heard about Kobe, you know, and that's how she found out her husband and child were dead. Isn't that amazing? Because, you know, and the standard of care is you notify next of kin before yeah. you go and release that stuff. So somebody in the police department, in the fire department, wherever, skipped all of that in the name of, hey, I broke that news. Here, Here's my, here's my moment of fame. Here's my moment of, here, I need $5,000 for this story. Whatever it is, they're getting something out of it at the expense of that family and that tragedy. And then we had it again. People died. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, this this isn't just some whimsical thing. People died Absolutely. in this. I mean, and then I, they show the pictures of the bodies. Who would think of this sort of thing? And the other thing is, see, this just makes my blood boil thinking about mm -hmm. this. These are people working in law enforcement. With everything going on, with with you know people accusing the police of being evil, mm. and then you know there's a lot of amazing good people in in police. Just like there are a lot of amazing good psychologists out there, it only takes one. It only takes one to do something like this to make us think they're all that way, and that's what kills me because I, I have personal friends, police officers, sheriffs. Uh, border Patrol agents, military police that are amazing human beings. And it's, you know, I see their reactions. They get kicked. It's like somebody kicked them in the gut, mm -hmm. you know, because they know that's going to reflect on the next person they pull over on the side of the road because they're speeding or because they're concerned maybe they've been drinking and they got a car full of kids, you know. Um, it is just undermining the whole undermining the whole reason for those first responders for, for our protection. You know, we always say it to protect and to serve, you know, and they can't do that if we don't trust them. And if these few bad people destroy that trust for everybody, how do we get it back? Remember when Michael Jackson died? Yes. Do you know the news organization that broke the story of his death? You know which one it was? Don't recall. TMZ. Mm, the same one. Never mind. I'm going to be quiet. TMZ. <laughs> yes. Now, I've said, and, you know, I've brought this up in classrooms in college, in trade school. I'm bringing it up on the air here. It's part of that shift, not only in journalism and media, but I think it's a shift in society in terms of exactly what is acceptable and what's not. I mean... Am I wrong? Am I, am I just so old-fashioned, so old-school to think there was a time when people wouldn't even think of doing something like this? There was, and it wasn't that long ago. 
people would not even think about doing that. But it's a numbers game. It's it's a numbers game because for every 300 of you and me, there's two that don't think that way. And those two, going back to the police, that's all it takes. And then the next 300 of us coming up behind us, the next generation start thinking, well, they got away with it and didn't hurt them. And so maybe I should be out there and get my name in the, in the media and boom, they find out something and well, it was okay for them. I'm going to let the world know. And it snowballs. Now it's not two, two every 300. It's now 10 every 300. Then the next thing we know, it's a hundred out of the 300. And, uh, where does it end? Mm. Where does it end? Where are the moral benchmarks in our culture, in our society that said, you know, maybe we shouldn't have done that. I mean, the days of Walter Cronkite are gone. And uh, I don't think we can put the toothpaste back in the tube. It's pretty obvious that's that's not the case and not going to be the case anytime soon, soon to say the least. Uh, tell you what, let's go back to the phone. Um, interesting things people were bringing up on phone. Uh, 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. Let's go to Dave in New Jersey. He's been holding for a while. Dave, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Good morning, Bob. Great to speak to you. This is... Dave, formerly Dave from Irvington. Now I moved to West Orange. Oh, been in a while. <clears throat> You're moving, moving up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I have a um, question for Doctor Huber. Uh, mm-hmm. yes. Am I pronouncing it right? Yes, sir. Doctor Huber, uh, first of all, you know um, you're doing amazing work. You know, and um, my my hats go off to you. Um, I have a question. I'm a Black American civil rights activist. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've dedicated my life to fighting anti-Semitism, racism, you know, and, uh, you know, just trying to make the world a better place. I have a question for you. Do you think that people who spew racist and anti-Semitic hate uh, contribute to the climate of mental illness? You know, I my concern is, you know, and I'll drop the names, I don't care, the Louis Farrakhan's you know, and of the world, you know, who spend all their time and energy riling up their base against the Jews, the white man, and you know, and, and America, are they in some ways contributing to, you know, the mental illness of people who are already angry, you know, their life is a failure, they're mad at the world, and, uh, you know, when you tell them, well, this particular religion or this particular group is responsible, you know, for your failures in life. You know, is that is that contributing to the possibility of someone who is already unstable wanting to go out and, heaven forbid, kill some whites or kill some blacks or some Jews, you know, because, you know, they're already angry and they've been told, well, these groups are responsible for their problems. Wow, that's a that's a tough question, and I wish I could say there's one thing that's causing people to go out and do that. I think it's a combination of a lot of things, and I think you had it right when you said, does it contribute? Yes, I think the world, all your individual experience contributes to that, and when you are suffering and somebody turns around and does something like that, I think that it totally can 
uh, contribute to that. You know, we look at all our mass shootings and everything else, and we know there's some very uh, common, maybe overwhelmingly common stuff that never gets out there. For example, the, the, the school shooters, almost every one of them had an absentee father. The father was either in the home and had nothing to do with raising the kids or is just totally not present. And these people had mental health issues. And that combination was basically kind of got that snowball rolling down that hill with every one of those shooters. Yet we don't hear that in the media. Why not? Because it doesn't fit with some of this ideals that, you know, traditional family is not that important. What's important is you have a parent that loves you and a parent that does this. And the reality of it is, yeah, you don't have to have those if you're mentally well, but if your child has some issue, you need all that support and all the parenting you can get in that situation. And that's, you know, I wish there was one thing that we can say, let's fix this and it'll stop all that violence. I think you're right, though. It does contribute. How much depends upon the individual, depends upon a lot of other things. Thank you. Yeah, well, you know, you you make an excellent point, you know, because America has come a long way, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, human beings relating to each other on a personal level. And what what what, what bothers me is, you know, about, you know, these folks who, who spew this hate is that you could turn, you know, some of our Caucasian brothers and sisters you know, who are basically loving and accepting of all people, you know, somebody could all of a sudden, you know, become, if if, if you're told constantly, well, you know, all of my problems are your fault, right. <laughs> you know, it could easily turn that person's mind and, you know, they could become, you know, um, more, you know, guarded and, and, and more prejudiced. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Dave, thank you very much for your call this morning. Thank you. Congratulations on the move as well, too. Right. Thank you so okay. much. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. You want to join us in our discussion. We're talking with uh, Dr. John Huber on our program. He's the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, which is a nonprofit organization on the web at Mainstream Mental Health. That's all is one word, dot O-R-G. And he's with us for our entire program this morning. After 8, it's um, the Sports Edge with Rick Wolf that's along. We have our look around the sporting world here at 720 with Dave Uram. Radio.com. Radio.com. It's Sunday morning on the fan. Long after our 9 o'clock update this morning, it's Ed Randall who will be by. He'll be talking baseball here on the fan. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf has the Sports Edge program. We are in a discussion with Dr. John Huber on our program. Dr. Huber is the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, and he's uh, joined us and is with us for our entire program today. We've been talking about a number of issues surrounding um, mental health. We're going to get into talking a little bit about the topic of depression as we continue. But I said we'll also try to work in thoughts from folks who are listening to us. 877-337-6666 is our number. Let's go to, um, da, 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 da. okay, let's go over to uh, Jerry in Brooklyn. Jerry, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Good morning, Bob. You know, uh, uh, Dr. Huber, I've listened to you two or three times, I guess, on the Bob Salter Show. I think you're terrific in, in spreading you. awareness and understanding. 
Um, I worked 38 years um, in the nonprofit working with most of the at-risk populations, people with disabilities, the formerly incarcerated, the homelessness, and the, the barriers that they come to us with. i got a question for you. A number of years ago, I was asked at an interview. Uh, it was a behavioral uh, interview question, and the person asked me, in a nutshell, if somebody walked into your cubicle and announced that they felt suicidal, what would you do? And I'd like to know, now, obviously, I, I, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a social worker, I'm not a therapist, um, I've been a business developer in employment services and education. And, and let's assume that, that my supervisor or the, one of those people were not available. I didn't like the answer that I got, and I got into a heated discussion and didn't get the job, by the way. But I'd like <laughs> to know what what you would do uh, as a non-professional. What would the process be, or what do you think the process should be? Well, believe it or not, I get asked this a lot by by lay people, non-professionals. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's an important thing to realize that if somebody's doing it, they're asking you for something. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, first of all, don't be afraid to have that conversation. You're not going to give them an idea that they didn't think of. You know, you're not going to be the one who tells them, oh, this is the method you could kill yourself with the best. What you need to do is ask them, tell me what's going on. You know, and they are looking for a voice, and you need to give them an opportunity to have that. Have that conversation. There's a few things I want you to do. You know, what's your plan? If they have a legitimate plan... You know, hey, let's call somebody. Let's, you know, let's go down to the emergency room. Let's, you know, there are things you can do. The simplest thing would be literally to call 911. Now we're talking about a national suicide number where you can call and you can get get a hold of uh, uh, online assistance and live live people to talk to at that point. But 911 works. And you'll be surprised the, the, the people on the other end who answer those phones are trained to deal with this stuff, trained to help you help these people. They also can send the police there, first responders who know how to de- deal with this. You know, I don't want to turn a police officer into a into a therapist. That's not their job. But, right. again, they know the next step to do. My concern... You know, look, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, that's exactly what I tried to do, uh, to have a conversation, and I was told that was the wrong answer, that I should call 911, and the reason I was given was that I am not a professional, and the, you don't know if that person has a weapon on them. And, and I thought by me picking up the telephone and calling 911, that might scare the person, even after a brief settling down period, as far as trust, as far as anything else that might trigger something off. So I, I'm still confused today, but listening to you, uh, that's what happened, and I'm still confused, uh, even by your answer, to be very truthful, Dr. Yuba. Um, one quick question, yes. if I may, um, regarding the coronavirus. I feel that uh, I asked myself, would I go into a Chinese restaurant, a crowded Chinese restaurant, and have, and have dinner? Uh, I feel that's an overreaction on my part, um, and I'm just wondering, if it does get worse, can we expect um, situations like that to escalate, to be uh, a little overreactive? Or where do you draw the line? Should it get worse? Thank you, and please, guys, have a great day. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you for your call, your patience on the phone.
Would you like to respond? <laughs> well, I, I do know that there's a few things going on when we get into that group think. We talked about it earlier. Mm -hmm. And the ability to just instantly start thinking like a group is right there. So always take a deep breath and realize that the, the conditions that went on in China, uh, for example, at that wet market, there, there's no place in the United States where that's legally accepted for that to have happen. And mm -hmm. the odds, you know, we don't just cut chicken and beef and poultry all on the same table and then just kind of hose it off without disinfecting. I mean, you know, they don't use bleach. They don't do anything like that. They hose it down to a big drain at the end of that Wuhan market. That doesn't happen here in the States. So uh, it, there, there's a reason, you know, we, we go back to Upton Sinclair and we turn around and said, hey, don't do this. This is not how, how we should handle food in this country. And we haven't for decades. So take a deep breath, enjoy your food, and stop that instant reaction. Don't knee-jerk. Use your brain. Back to the phone we go to, um, let's see where we hit this time around. Uh, Glenn in Jersey City has been holding well. Glenn, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Gentlemen, thank you uh, for taking my call. Uh, Dr. Uber, I have a question uh, specifically for you. Uh, just touching on what you were saying about the police, uh, your scenario with you know, 300 good ones and a few bad apples. I agree with you. Probably the number is off. It's, it's off, yeah. It's just a generalization, exactly. No, I got you. But uh, I'm African-American, and for years we've been hearing about how the majority of police are good people, which I believe. However, we've all heard the scenario, evil is when good people do nothing. Correct. And when a cop sees another fellow cop do something bad, it is career suicide. And this was described to me by an uh, officer. He said, if you turn against your partner, at best case scenario, it's career suicide. In some cases, it's actually suicide suicide. So the system is not even set up for good cops to do the right thing and turn on partners. So you have a system where, although a minority might be corrupt, the good ones can't even do anything about it except without fear of them being ostracized. Absolutely. And I think it even goes up higher even outside of our, our social or civil service organizations beyond the police chief. It goes to the, the county commissioners. It goes to the, the city council because they drive that atmosphere. And then the police chief has, you know, it trickles down at that point. I think you are completely correct, and we have to be vigilant. In fact, we have to be hypervigilant today because we got to turn that around. I get calls. I talk with police chiefs. I talk with council members across the country. I think slowly it is changing. But that's, you know, because of things like Black Lives Matter, people are paying attention finally. So, you know, we may think they're an extremist group in certain situations, but the reality of it is if we didn't have them, we wouldn't be paying attention to it. So we need that. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, a few years ago, I saw the most disturbing video I've ever seen in my life. You might have saw it where uh, this gentleman who was a behavior therapist in Florida trying to save a patient, lying on the street, hands clearly in the air, and he was shot by, by a cop who was a sniper. And I could imagine my son going to school, graduating college, and becoming a doctor, trying to save a patient, clearly hands on a, flat on his back, totally defenseless and being shot. And a big problem is when these Kate cops go to jury, they get acquitted or, or um, you know, people are sitting home because they couldn't come to a conclusion. When you got, we all know, the odds of you 
catching a cop killing somebody is remote. So when you actually see it on video with your own eyes, and juries of mostly non-blacks still say, well, I understand why the cop shot him, I think that contributes to it. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for your call and your patience on the phone as well this morning, Glenn. Uh, stay with folks on the phone. We go to Jay in Manahawken next. Jay, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Hey, good morning, Bob, uh, president of your fan club. It's been a while, Bob. Thank you, Thank you very much. Uh, hey, uh, Doc, can, let me ask you a political question if I may. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, uh, these uh, people under 30 years old, they're saying, if a Bernie Sanders type ever got into the White House, we're talking about free medical care, free college, in your profession and professors, how are they going to get a paycheck? Who is going to pay them? Who's going to keep these colleges open? Uh, I, I've I, been asked that question for the last 20 years myself, and I've been getting from my peers shrug shoulders. Oh, it'll happen. No, it won't. Look at no. Look, yeah, we're, you yeah. know, I pay for my. I'm 73. My wife and I have had good medical care that we pay for for us and our children. Correct. And uh, my family, my grandkids are in it now, and they're they're paying also at work. And uh, I just don't understand uh, the 30 and unders are not understanding. They're not getting, and they're probably not listening to this program this morning. No, they're sleeping right now, <laughs> or uh, on their cell phone, or on their cell phone. But they'll be up by <laughs> one or two o'clock this afternoon. So it'll yeah, be fine. Uh, so I don't know how it's going to happen, Doc. Uh, you know what the colleges would do or the medical profession. I it, or people going to school to be a doctor. Exactly. And part of the problem is that, that many in the ivory tower have never been outside of the ivory tower. They've never had to produce uh, for an employer. They've never had to produce for customers. You know, they say, Oh, well, it's a service industry we're doing here. Then why do they still, you know, graduate people with, with degrees that nobody out there hires for that area. And, And it's because they're not held to, the, the standards, you know, if, if I ran a business the way they ran colleges, I would not have a business. Well, listen, you guys have a great day. And, Bob, always a great show. Thank you very much, Jay. Appreciate that. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. All right. Next up is uh, Chris in Manhattan. Chris, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. Doing well. Thank you. I just want to say one thing. Are you having on Dr. Uber here? This is the greatest two hours I've ever had listened to on radio. And I'm 60 years old, and I'm always listening to the radio. This was so enjoyable, so informative. And Doc and Bob, Bob, thanks for having Doctor on. It's, it's, it's a spectacular show today, spectacular. I just want to say thank you. The check is in the mail, Chris. Thank you very much. <laughs> that, that, thank you very much for your call. Yeah, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. Great stuff. Thank, thank you, you, Chris. Thank you. Oh, I guess guess. We we hit with We're someone. Done, man. <laughs> that, I mean, I don't. I, what do we got from here? Is to you go downhill. As a matter of fact, let, let's <laughs> let's get Rick Wolf in here, and you know, I, I'm headed out. Let's go out to breakfast at this sure. point. Oh boy! Wow. Thank okay. you, Chris. Very interesting uh, comments from folks listening to us. You can uh, keep those coming if you want to in terms of uh, thoughts, comments, along the lines of things we're talking about. Eight seven seven three three seven sixty six sixty six is our number. Let's touch upon a couple of things here um, before we wrap up in discussion. One we can do before Dave's next update, I believe. This topic of depression and the thought of using or exploring psychedelic drugs as treatment for depression. What's going on with this? (laughs) Funny you should ask. Um, You know... 
this past year, we we got FDA approval for a nasal spray made out of a specific type of ketamine. And ketamine is a molecule that has uh, mirror images. It's It's got a left and a right-hand version of itself. Mm. Both of them can do essentially the same thing. And so since the ketamine was originally uh, created, which it was created by the government in the early 70s, late 60s, they were looking for an opiate substitute. Mm-hmm. And they went in and they had commissioned university university laboratories to pull this stuff together and they came up with this this compound and it had some amazing good qualities to it that were really great and they started doing research on it and it found out that it had some bad things and you might recognize that drug as pcp Mm. um and so the government invented pcp essentially and they said well look there's a lot of good things in here maybe we can do something with this so they started cleaving off parts of these molecules and one of them ended up being ketamine and used appropriately it's a great anesthetic you administer it in an bolus type now and i apologize right now i have several of my students from texas who are actually in in new york city right now going through their medical you know training and stuff and we had this conversation the other night when we were out to dinner uh, and so I apologize if I'm not getting the terminology exactly right. I'm PhD, not MD. Hang on for a second. You're out to dinner with a couple of your students, and this is what you're talking about? Yeah, I can ask casual conversation, you know. This is your casual conversation <laughs> over dinner? <laughs> yes, it's true, yes. And their spouses are, like, looking at us going, can y'all talk about, like, horse racing or something? Let's go. <laughs> They're looking at their phones. <laughs> it, I, well, actually, you know, I don't. I don't recall one of them pulling out their phone. Now that's highly unusual. Well, we this got some highly age. educated people there too. So no, I mean, nobody pulled out their phones. Nobody pulled out their phone. Hang on, yeah. I got to help myself up off the floor after and, hearing and, that one. And, and I have to say, I, I was at the State Bar and Grill in in the Empire State Building, and they they treated us like like kings and queens. In fact, uh, uh, the manager came over and talked to us, and it turns out that. One of the chefs there is the sister of one of my students that's still back in Texas. And uh, just an amazing experience. They gave us, you know, VIP treatment the whole night. It was really great. Very nice. Nice place, too. Uh, It is. Yes, definitely. Hmm. Executive chef. All right. What we're going to do is take a pause in our discussion. Come back. We'll touch upon more on uh, this topic as we're talking with Dr. John Huber on our program this Sunday morning. Along after our 8 o'clock update this morning, it is Rick Wolf with the Sports Edge program. Ed Randall's Talking Baseball follows our 9 o'clock update. We're in a discussion with Dr. John Huber on our program. He's been with us since we started at 6 this morning. Dr. Huber is chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, and we've been talking about some uh, areas of discussion surrounding uh, mental health. We've taken some interesting calls from some of the folks listening to us as well. You want to join us? You can. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. We were talking about um, this whole idea of depression, treating depression, and you were touching upon um, ketamine. Um, talking about that, uh, where we are essentially with that. One of the things I had read was it's, is it being offered at this point or has it been proposed to be offered to people who have what's referred to as treatment 
resistant depression? Short answer is yes. I think personally and professionally and with the physicians that I work with that it shouldn't be a treatment of last resort. In fact, there's research out there that suggests that uh, if, a, if given appropriately, we can stop suicidality in over 90% of the cases by giving an appropriate administration of that medication. So when somebody hits the emergency room and they're suicidal, if they're given that, they can actually be safely sent home, according to this research. And I, I don't have the actual document in front of me right now. So um, that uh, we can send them safely home, non-emergency threat to themselves uh, within a day or two less versus what we do now is we take them for observation, maybe sent them to a state facility or, or a psychiatric unit where we make observations sometimes up to two weeks before we make a final placement for their depression. Now, if you're depressed and all of a sudden you're not going to work because you made a statement that you might be suicidal, a lot of people lose jobs because they don't want to tell their bosses that, well, you know, they were looking at me at the mental health facility because I reported that I was suicidal, mm -hmm. so I was gone for two weeks. How do you explain that? So, I mean, it creates a significant problem, and I think the application of ketamine appropriately should be administered first before we go and send somebody away for two weeks because if that data is correct, we have a quick me method to make someone significantly less likely to harm themselves in a very short period of time as opposed to some of these people just learn exactly what to say after being hospitalized for two weeks mm -hmm. and going through the little therapy groups and like that. So they may not actually be less suicidal, but now they know exactly what to say. So the doctors release them and say they're not an immediate threat to self or others and they send them home. So I think ketamine should not be in that kind of a situation, a last ditch effort. I've also seen what it's done for our veterans dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of the end products of PTSD is depression. And to watch these soldiers no longer be depressed and are able to go back home and interact with their kids and their family and be a content human being as opposed to maybe a, a depressed lump that doesn't really want to do anything, which... Again, that's a vicious cycle. It circles back around. I think we really seriously need to look at uh, ketamine in that sort of model because the data is showing it's not taking weeks and weeks like some of these other antidepressants to give people to get things turned around. So I think the data is coming along. It's uh, the researchers out there across the nation. We've had two national conferences on ketamine the American Society for Ketamine Physicians had their first one two, two years ago in Austin. The second one was this past year in Denver. Um, don't know if they decided on the, on the place for this next one, but literally we went from 150 physicians the first one. The second year we were pushing 900 physicians who showed up. Really? So people are seeing this as a legitimate viable treatment modality as opposed to a last if ditch, kind of nothing else worked. Uh, the the side effects are minimal. 
The interaction with other medications are minimal. You don't have things like weight gain like you do with a lot of our antipsychotic, antidepressant medications. So um, there's a lot of benefits. If what I believe is going to happen continues to happen and move forward, it is it is revolutionizing the healthcare industry, and uh, it's it's just an amazing amazing tool it's not the end all and be all it doesn't work for everything no mm-hmm. nobody has this perfect button uh that's going to just you know fix everything so we have to realize that but when patients in our own clinic when we treat them for different disorders and things like alcoholism you know a lot of times people are are using alcohol and drugs to not feel the pain that they're having psychologically because of the stigma associated with it. They can't go get help, blah, blah, blah. Now we get them and we're treating them with ketamine and we're having an 80% success rate in our clinic for alcoholism, for, for treating addictions like heroin and stuff like that. And, you know, I've, I've been on Dr. Drew's show several times, talked to him off the phone and we'll sit there and talk about, and he he's an expert in addiction. I mean, you know the the celebrity celebrity addiction show he had on MTV, all this kind of stuff. This guy knows what he's talking about when he tells me that the national average is an eight percent recovery rate for the traditional models. And in my clinic, in the last two years doing this, we're running close to eighty percent using ketamine as some sort of modality within that inter- interaction with our patients. That that's significant, and uh, you know we don't treat three hundred thousand people for addictions. I don't have that kind of model, but I know it, it that that the data is there that supports what what we're doing, and uh, I'm looking forward to to a, a different world where that's mainstream. We quit talking about we quit talking about it being a last resort for treatment resistant. My thoughts are it should be the treatment. Because the effects, the side effects are minimal. The, the 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 psychological and physiological addictions to ketamine are minimal. Uh, the, you know, the biggest issue in the data on ketamine we have are risks for urinary tract infections, bladder infections, which are simple enough and easy enough to treat. We're not talking about thirty pounds of weight added every year while they're on the medication, like some of our other psychotropic drugs which can, can make people depressed now. Now all of a sudden, you know, two years later, they're 60 pounds heavier than when they were when they started, and now they feel unattractive and people don't like me anymore because I don't look good. You know, we start having these negative thoughts, and all of a sudden they're depressed again. So it should not be a last-ditch effort. I think we need to get more of this research published you know, the speakers who come to this conference the last couple of years have come in and, and you know, it's been peer-reviewed, but then because of whatever's happened, the PCBs with the pharmacies and all this kind of stuff, they're not making money off the ketamine, so they don't want that information. They'd rather, you know, push the, the psychotropics we've got that they're making a lot more money on. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that we got S-ketamine approved for the nasal spray for depression, I know that's not the model that most of my patients enjoy and like, but I also work closely with compounding pharmacists who help make the different modalities for our microdosing for our patients and things like that. And they tell me to this day that that is over 50% of all the ketamine that they sell is through the nasal spray. So it works for some people. It really does. And 
I don't want to minimize any modality because if it's working for you, use it. Don't don't think, well, Dr. Huber said, well, no. I want my patients to get better. And if it's, a, for example, a placebo effect, but you're better, I don't care if it's a placebo effect. I want you better. That's my job is to make you well as best as I possibly can. So I'm willing to do that, but at the same time, I want to make sure you're safe. So I work with physicians. I'm not an MD. I'm a PhD, so I work with physicians, with nurse practitioners. We do blood work. Mm-hmm. We, we monitor our patients. And I know that there are places out there that don't do that. And uh, they scare me because I'm afraid they're going to do something and have a problem that now the whole industry looks, well, see, ketamine's dangerous. Don't use that. But, you know, when I turn around and look, and last year we had four or 500 patients that come through this for PTSD, and they're out there with their families and having a life now, uh, this stuff works. Mm. What about psilocybin? Man, psilocybin is is uh, right there. I've got actually a podcast where we started off talking about MDMA being used, and the researchers started talking about the psilocybin because the effects are so great. In their study out of uh, Nevada, I believe it was, uh, that uh, their patients were given self-report surveys like we do when people are depressed. We have them fill these things out, and it tells us their level of depression and things like that. After given get, being given one treatment of psilocybin, now, he didn't explain how much that treatment was, but they were basically, they checked into the hospital, and then they had kind of a guide or a coach who was a licensed mental health practitioner who stayed with them and went through, and they, they went through the nurse process and all this, and then they were released home at the end of the day. So whatever that treatment however much they gave them and stuff like that i i you know but they would turn around every week then and have them fill out these depression inventories and on average the first person didn't start reporting depressive systems for six months using the dosage and the experiential model that they've used so that means basically you could go in twice a year every six months Hmm. and get this dosage administered and not have to worry about did you take your antidepressant yesterday morning that's pretty impressive. It is. But there's no, guess what, patents, copyrights, anything like that. So there's no money in it, no big money in it mm-hmm. for for Big Pharma, and we're not seeing it. It's, it's, it's you know, I, I talked with uh, some people on Wall Street. They actually introduced me to people right then that was there in town talking with them, and corporations in other countries are doing the work and trying to push it. And, uh, it, it's, it's interesting. I've actually got meetings scheduled in the next couple of weeks with, with some of these people. So what countries, uh, well, let's just say Canada is one of them. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Dr. John Huber is talking with us on our program on the fan this Sunday morning. He's the chairman for mainstream mental health, mainstreammentalhealth.org, the uh, website, uh, for the nonprofit organization. He's touched upon a lot of different things with us in our discussion today. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program here on The Fan. Now, there are people who are um, just joining us in our discussion. I know this is probably as shocking to you as it is to me that people haven't been literally riveted since we started the portion of our discussion today, but some people are just joining us. 
We touched upon the coronavirus at the very beginning of our discussion and touched upon this whole idea of fear surrounding it and basically in the area of group fear. Would you just share those thoughts in about a minute or so we have here? (laughs) I'll summarize it. Yeah, we need to Quit following in in that group thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you get that that update all the time about coronavirus this, coronavirus that, and then you go, well, maybe I should get one of those masks. And you go into your store. Oh, we've been sold out of those for days. Man, everybody, it's a crisis. They need it. I must need it too. And uh, it it just perpetuates that fear and the paranoia when. From a practical, real-life situation, we should be washing our hands with soap and water. We should be using as warm a water as we can. When you wash your hands, you should say the ABCs twice, not once, but twice. And in most cases, that gets the rid of the majority of viruses and bacteria that can cause you to be, be sick with things like the cold or the flu and some sorts of uh, bacterial-borne food diseases and things like that. So you need to be doing it anyway. We shouldn't be washing our hands 40 times a day. Now I say that, and there are days when I wash my hands 30 to 60 times a day. I'm in a hospital seeing my patients. I wash my hands when I walk into their room. I see them. I walk my wash my hands on the way out. And then when I go down and dictate, I'm either at the nurse's station or the dictation room, and I wash my hands there. So that is prevention, And I don't want to bring in disease for them, and I don't want to take disease out. So I need to be doing that anyway. We need to be washing our hands, taking lots of fluids, cover your mouth when you cough. Don't be afraid. Live your life. And do the ABCs twice? While you're washing your hands. The full ABCs? Well, if you do it once backwards, I think that would be fine. I'm speechless. I'm going to try this. Of course, I may be washing my hands for about a half hour at that point, <laughs> too. Uh, long after our top of the hour updated is Rick Wolf with the Sports Edge program. And after our 9 o'clock update, well, you know, speaking of the ABCs, where there's about six jokes just went through my head, and I just realized I can't do any of them on the air. Let me just say, Ed Randall will be along. He'll be talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update. A couple weeks ago, let me tell a true story. You'll like this. Ed comes into the newsroom on Sunday morning. Says these two words to me. Miss me? I'm still thinking about my answer. Have a great week, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.